You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Coop. So this morning we're going to talk about, or this afternoon, understanding our enemy and getting a better idea of it. If you're a boxer and you get in the boxing ring, you know what you want to do? You want to study a little bit about your opponent, find out how he throws his left hook. If you're a hockey player, you'll watch tapes on what the, how the opponent plays. We had a friend, or I do have a friend, he used to play for... Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and he got traded and moved up to the Minnesota Vikings. That was a bit of an upgrade in the football career, and he played for them. But a lot of their game was not just going to practices and working out. A lot of it was sitting down and watching tapes of how their opponents played and studying their opponents, and that would better prepare them for winning on the, on the playing field. In life, we have to study our opponent at times to win. We don't want to give any more time than we have to. Our opponent's kind of slippery. He's a bit of a phantom, and to know him and how he operates helps us to win in these battles we sometimes fight in life. There was a movie called Master and Commander. In this movie, there's a guy by the name of Lucky Jack. It's a, during the time of Napoleon. He's in charge of a British ship, and there's this phantom ship that he has to track down. And he's having a hard time tracking it down, but then he gets some inside information on how this uh, enemy is operating, how his boat works, and where his vulnerability is, and that allows them to, to win the battle. Here's a little clip where he's studying his enemy and how to be successful. Let's watch a little clip from Master and Commander. Salute. off. What's all this about? It's the Phantom, sir. Excuse me, that's what the men call it. It's the Acheron, sir. You see, Will here, he's seen her being built. In, in Boston, sir. During the peace. But she's Yankee built, sir. You see, he was getting married there. And his wife's second cousin, he works in the yards. So Will here saw the ship out of water. Sir, I, I saw there was something right strange about her. and So I, I asked Joe and... So he described it to me and I knocked you up a model, sir. sir. This framing is accurate. Exactly accurate, sir. Thank you, lads. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Killick, an extra ration of rum for these men. Thank you very much, sir. Joe's saving for saluting, Dale. I'll drink wine. I'll drink wine. Bluff above the water and sharp below. Gives the hull a finer entry and a long run as she goes aft. That's why she's so fast. Heavier, but faster spotted. That's the future. What a fascinating modern age we live in. Planking and framing like that would make a hull, what, two foot thick, solid oak? That's why we couldn't dent it. <laughs> Probably capable of making 12 to 14 knots. Now I know. Thank God for Wally and his wife's second cousin. Well, she could be doing up to 280 miles a day. Even if we did catch up with her, I mean, to take her, she's out of our class. She's a 44-gun ship. She's still vulnerable at the stern, like the rest of us. Great. So it's a clip that talks about they're studying the ship, they're studying their enemy, they're studying how he's as vulnerable and how they should uh, plan their attack. This morning, or this afternoon, we're going to talk about our enemy and what our role should be, knowing a little more about him so we can have victory. So the first point is, who are we fighting? First Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. 
Take note of that verse, fight the good fight of faith. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. It's the good fight of faith. Who are we fighting? If we're in a fight, who's the fight with? If you're going to fight somebody, it's good to know who it is and know something about them, and your chances of winning are a lot better if you know something about them. Well, we are fighting as Christians. We're not fighting our neighbor. We're not fighting our, our in-laws or outlaws or, or our boss or employees or somebody else. We're fighting not flesh and blood, not people, the Bible says. We're fighting our enemy, and his name is Satan. He's not some mythical character, but a very real enemy to all mankind. He's not like the good tooth fairy or like some other character. Halloween comes, we dress up in costumes, and somebody's this character and somebody's that character, and somebody plays the devil, they've got a pitchfork and a couple horns in their head, you know, and, and they're, they're the devil, and uh, it's just all fun. Somebody once said the greatest trick Satan never pulled off was to convince men that he wasn't real. And uh, if that's where you're at, oh, I think it's just some mythical character. He's not very real. Well, then he's got you just where he wants you because you're very easy to manipulate. He's very easy to work as a phantom behind the scenes and influence your life. The last thing he wants us to do is ha- have him exposed. The Bible says to expose the work of darkness. And so this is not his favorite message. None of the messages are his favorite, of course. But he'd rather not have people know about him because then he is vulnerable. And uh, we want to rather bring to light some of the ways he operates. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Be careful. Another translation says, Be sober. Be sober in spirit. Be alert in the spiritual realm. We live in a city that's pretty good. We have, we have it pretty comfortable. We're not at war. We, have, we don't have to go to our grocery stores and look for food. We've got an amazing country to live in. And for the most part, it's pretty peaceful. It's easy as Canadians just to kind of relax and not be of sober spirit. What Peter says to all of us, really applies to all of us, that we need to be sober. We need to be alert. We need to be careful because he says, watch out for the attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. And obviously it's easier for him to devour people who are not careful, who aren't sober, who aren't alert. So we want to be alert. Today's message is about that, being alert. You have, says here, a great enemy. I once heard a preacher say, oh, you know, the devil's stupid. He's just stupid. Well, you know what? Maybe compared to God, he's stupid, but not compared to people. He has been trapping people for a long time, and we've seen some very smart people do some very dumb things. You can think of politicians, you can think of leaders, you can think of preachers, you can think of people who are very intelligent and smart, but they did some really dumb things. It's not because they weren't smart, it's because they have an enemy who's very cunning, and he knows how to trap people. He's been doing it for centuries. And isn't it interesting that people fall for the same tricks over time? hundred years ago, thousand years ago, David, look what he fell into adultery. He fell into a trap way back then. You think, okay, we all learned a lesson. Nobody does it again. But people are still falling into the same traps. And so God wants us to be aware, wants us to be alert. He says, I want to show you how your enemy operates so you don't have to fall into those traps. Be sober. Be alert. You have an enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion. It says he's a great enemy. We don't give him more credit than he's due, but you need to have a healthy respect for the enemy that you fight. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. I have a friend. He's, he's in Nepal, and I met him when we went to Nepal a number of years ago. He lives in Kathmandu, and we did a conference in 
in a city called Duran Bazaar. And it was bizarre. Trust me, trust me. It was, it was when we were there, it was, I went to 1999, so it was just before the year 2000. Remember the big concern of the year 2000 because it was Y2K, all the computers are going to go crazy when we hit the year 2000. You remember that? People were freaking out about that and there was all kinds of, that was the end of the world coming and of course, the year 2000 came and went and nothing happened. Uh, but anyhow, this was before then. But when I was in Nepal, it was the year 2052. That was on the, so they went through Y2K, no problems. I knew it was going to be okay because they'd already been there. Uh, and it was just a really different city. It was so, they'd never had anything like it before. And he, he was, recently he came to the States. He was going to come to Canada and visit but yeah, he called me, and I was talking on the phone. He says, Dave, I said, how are things in Duran Bazaar? He said, oh, you, I was just staying with somebody in Portland, he said, and they told me they found God at that conference in Duran Bazaar where we went to and we spoke there and helped them. And he said, and this woman was healed of incurable cancer at that conference, and her daughter had a foot disease, and she too was healed at that conference. And today, they're in Portland as pastors in that city. So you have no idea the lasting impact from that conference. He emailed me before he came. He said, Dave, I have a question for you. Actually, when he got here, I have a question for you. In Nepal, I was at this meeting, and we had to... uh, They said we must resist Satan. They said Satan was here. And then I came to... The States, and they said Satan was here. Could Satan be in Nepal, and could he be in the United States at the same time? Good question. The answer is no, because he's not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. He's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, and he's not all-powerful. Does he have power? Yes, but he's not all-powerful. Now, we'll talk about it in a bit. He does have an army of other powers of darkness, demons, and so forth, but he's not. He is not God. He's not... God, he's always been under God's sovereign control. And so we need to know that. We need to know about our enemy, about his limitations. Does he have power? Yes. Can he do things? Yes. But you have been given power and authority over all his power. That's a good place to say amen. You know, if we're in a southern church, it'd be, preach it, brother. Come on. But anyway, we're not. We're in a, we're in a Canadian church, so that's all right. But I'm, I'm just helping you. It's a good place to say Amen. Yeah, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, he said, I have given you, that would be you and your neighbor, I've given you authority to tread over serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. So does he have power? Yes. But you, your power trumps his power. It's like God gave you a deputy badge. You remember those old Western movies? A bad guy comes to town, and the sheriff says, hey, Joe, come on, I need you in my posse. Sam, come on, I need you in my posse. I'm going to deputize you, and you now have a gun and authority. God gave you power and authority over all his power. So as we go into this message, please remember that. It's very important to have that point in the back of your mind. He said, be careful, be on the alert. There's a number of different names for our enemy in the Bible. One is accuser of the brethren. That's why we don't want to go around accusing other people because we just line up with his camp when we do that. We don't, he's called adversary, Beelzebub. By the way, none of these names don't ever give to your kids, all right? These aren't good names for that. Devil, liar, Lucifer, prince of this world, Satan, serpent, tempter, thief, wicked one, evil one. You get the picture. He, this is an idea of who he's like just by the names that he's given. Now, let's talk a little bit about his fall. There's not a lot said in the Bible about his fall. 
we get a little glimpse out of Isaiah, we get a little glimpse out of Ezekiel. There's a few snapshots of his fall, but we don't know a lot about it. Perhaps we don't know, need to know a lot about it. That's why God doesn't tell us a lot about it. There's not a lot that's said about it. We do know that at one time, he was there in heaven with God. And he decided he wanted to be stronger than God. And his pride, or pride, got into his heart. I don't know how. I don't have the theology behind that. Maybe somebody does, but I, I don't understand it all. I look, like Paul said, through a glass dimly. I know, though, that he fell. And Isaiah tells us about it. it. says, how have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, now look at the I wills here. This is all about pride. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. This is pure rebellion. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And the original here, the most high, we just studied all the names of God. This wasn't like, I will be Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, or I'll be the Lord, your shepherd. I'll be the Lord who cares for you. No, this is, I will be the strong one. So it's pure rebellion, birth in pride. And this is where his fall came. As a result of it, he was cast out of heaven. And most Bible scholars believe that also a third of the angels also fell at this time. And so we have this uh, leader with different cohorts that work with him. He went from wisdom to deceit. He went from intelligence to treachery, from beauty to lust, from guarding the holy place to be an abomination of holiness. So that's his past. That's his fall. And maybe the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about it because we don't need to concentrate on it. But we do know some more about his future. His future is found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. There we read, Then the devil who betrayed them was thrown into the lake of fire, the birth of sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is his future. Now, it's a kind of a cool verse to remember because the enemy comes along and he lies to you about your future. And he'll say, Oh, you know what? You're never going to make much of anything with your life. You know what? Those kids you have, they're going to rebel. You know what? You're never going to get married. You know what? Your company's going to fail. You know what? Uh, you, got, you graduate from school, but you're never going to get a job. And he lies about your future. And uh, when he lies about your future, and he, some of these little, some little imp or some little demons whispering that in your ear, here's a secret. A real good thing to do is you pull out Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and you say, wait a minute, let me just read you your future, because this is written, this is truth, this is where you're going, and you remind him about his future. It's a real good verse to pull out. He hates the truth. He hates the scriptures. And your greatest weapon is God's word. This is what our Lord did when he was tempted by Satan. He said, it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written. And it drives him bonkers. It drives him nuts. He can't stand it. He flees and runs away from it. So it's really good just some days just to read the Bible to your enemy. Yeah, that's good. It works. His goal, if we're studying our enemy, what's their goal? What would be his tactic, his goal, what does he think about doing? What's, if you distilled it, if you got it down to the basics, what's he really after? He's not after your money. Sometimes you think he'd be after our money. He's not after your health. He's not after your relationships. He's really after your faith. It's the good fight of faith. What's the battle over? Your faith. Why? He wants you and I to get to a place where we say, 
that's it, I quit, I tried, I trusted God, it's been three months, it's been three weeks, it's been a year, God didn't come through, I quit, I'm not going to trust God anymore, I'm going my own way, I'm throwing the towel in, I've had enough of this, I tried church, I tried God, I tried the Bible, I quit, that's it. That's exactly where he wants you to be. Why? He tries to drive a wedge between you and God. And he wants to isolate mankind from God and isolate us from each other. That's his primary motive for every attack in our life. He wants you alone. Because when you're alone, separated from God, separated from people, that's when he can torment you the most. And he, he hates you. He comes to kill, steal, destroy. John 10.10. 10. Jesus said, I've come to give you life, and life more abundantly. God's exact opposite. I want to draw you close to me like a shepherd, like a daddy. We studied all the names of the Father. This is our good God, a good Father, a heavenly Father. He wants to draw you close. He wants you to have friends. He wants you to be in community. He wants you to be connected to a church. He wants you to have community around you. This is your God. He knows we, we need each other. And so this is what he wants to do. Your enemy wants the exact opposite, try to isolate you. And you know, in our friendships, in our, in, our, in our small groups, he'll use any little thing to drive a wedge there. Maybe you belong to a, a small group, a home group, and, and everybody's supposed to bring a dessert one night, and you bring your favorite dessert. And you got a recipe from your mom, and she got that recipe from your grandmother, and you make the best Rice Krispie Squares there is anywhere. You think that anyhow. Your family all likes them. You make the best Rice Krispie Squares. And you bring them to home group one night, and you got your Rice Krispie Squares out there, and somebody brought chocolate chip cookies, and somebody brought, you know, they brought some chicken wings, and somebody else brought some uh, meatballs, and somebody else brought something else, and, and I'm getting hungry talking about this. <laughs> but anyhow, they brought all this food, and you look at it, and all the chocolate chip cookies are gone, and all the buffalo wings are gone, and all the meatballs are gone, and all the dip and the veggies are gone, all the fruit's gone, but nobody ate your Rice Krispie Squares. Man, I knew they didn't like me. The devil comes along, see, they don't like you. They didn't like your Rice Krispie Squares. It wasn't, and he, he began to, he'll use anything to drive a wedge between you. I'm not going back to that home group. They, you call up James. James, I need another home group. <laughs> they don't like my Rice Krispie Squares. I know they don't like me. Give me another home group. He'll use anything to drive a wedge between you and people, between you and God. This is his primary way of getting at people. He wants to just separate us from God, isolate us. He's after our faith. Faith pleases God. Faith displeases Satan. It's very simple. So, in life, if we understand what he's after... Then we can be like Job. I lost family. I lost some health. I lost some of my business. But I will never let go of my faith in God. You will not have my faith, my trust in God. It's good to know what we're up against, right? Okay. So that is his goal. What, what about his army? Is he by himself? No, he has an army. And there are varying degrees of wickedness amongst the fallen powers of darkness. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual wickedness in the high places. There is a rank and order there. At one point, Jesus said, He came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He had three disciples with Him. The other disciples were there. 
A father had asked them to pray for his son who was possessed by a demon. They couldn't do it. Jesus said, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting, indicating that it took a different type of approach. It was stronger. Other verses talk about the varying degrees of wickedness in that realm of darkness. So there's different degrees. There's rank. There's order to it. He's structured. He's, he's got an army in place that goes about trying to harass mankind. Our role is to be alert, to be alert, to be sober, to realize that there is an enemy that we will have to fight from time to time. You don't fight it every day. There's a time, there's a week, maybe there's a moment where you have to battle. Then you'll go along and it seems fine. Then also you, you'll hit a battle again. We have battles in life. Our role is to be prepared, to be ready, to understand our enemy and not be ignorant of how he operates. He has tactics. Second Corinthians 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What would it be like if we were able to take a sneak peek into his camp and wondered what they were talking about, these powers of darkness? There's a pastor in Michigan, and he has a church called Compass Church, and his name is Chad McCollum. And he was inspired by the Lord just to write... Uh, a report that would have come from one of the head demons to Satan. So he's reporting back to Satan, and he's got to give a report on Christians. And this is what he says to his master-in-chief there. He said, these Christians are a stubborn lot, almost impossible to get rid of. For 20 centuries, we've tried to stomp them out. Yet, in spite of our efforts, they spread their religion to every corner of the world. It's awful hard religion to destroy. You cut off a head and 20 grow back. You persecute them. They go underground, develop a pure strain of their religion. You kill them and they build on their martyr's blood. Get them to water down their faith and a little group somewhere will rediscover the real faith and start over again. They have an infuriating way of regenerating themselves. He goes on to say to, his, to Satan, all these Christians know how to turn a negative into a positive. They turn our best laid plans upside down. Get a couple of their famous religious figures to commit adultery or visit a prostitute, and they'll simply produce a thousand seminars and books on sexual fidelity, and the net effect will be greater morality among them. Not less, it's discouraging. Denominations are, of course, good targets. However, as quickly as one cools off, they'll start a new one. These Christians produce new denominations faster than roaches produce baby roaches. Same with local churches. No sooner we get a local church to die spiritually, and there will be two brand new ones cropping up in some school auditorium across town. It's hopeless. A few times in history, we pretty well got the whole church to get lukewarm, but not for long. Along came a John Wesley or John Knox. The whole nation turns back to God. Even when all organized religion is waning, they go out and launch a new strain of pure Christianity in some religious order or parachurch organization. Make them poor, they praise God. Make them rich, and someone like St. Francis will come along and teach them to live the positive way. Get them totally absorbed with fancy buildings and elegant worship, and some Quaker-like group will sprout up and introduce a religion of simplicity and plainness. Close all their buildings, lock the doors, they'll shrug their shoulders and move into homes, declaring it an improvement. Close a nation to missionaries, they'll sneak in as tent makers and infect people one at a time. Kick out all the missionaries, suppress Christianity like we did in China. What do we get? 25 years later, we've got millions of committed Christians who practice their faith underground. They're hard to get rid of. Introduce division and strife among the churches. They'll invent something like promise keepers or these new citywide worship events to restore a sense of unity. Divide them, they multiply, create strife, they make peace. 
And they've got money, lots of money. They give billions every week. That's B as in billions, W as in every week. Christianity is the largest single economic enterprise in the world, dwarfing every pet squeak other outfit. Millions of them give 10% of their income every week. It adds up. And they support a zillion different enterprises, college, universities, train millions of the youth, radio programs up and down the dial, even entire radio stations. They sponsor TV programs, bookstores, publishing houses, seminars, training programs. They even have their own full line of Christian music. I tell you, it's discouraging. As soon as, we, uh, as, soon as our side gets a hold of a new medium, Christians come along and they swamp us with their message. Look what they did with books, radio, TV, and now what they're doing to the Internet. It's discouraging. How do we crush these Christians out of existence? Rome couldn't do it. The Dark Ages didn't do it. State religion didn't do it. Darwin couldn't either. Rationalism couldn't. Neither could liberalism, communism, socialism, democracy, not even modernism. You can't tax them into oblivion. You can't legislate them out of existence. And if you ignore them, they won't go away. I tell you, they're hard to beat. He goes on to say, divide them, they'll unify. Beat them down, they pop back up. Create strife, they make peace. Criticize them, they listen with a smile. Hate them, they love you back. Take their coat, and they'll give you their cloak with plus others. Persecute them, they multiply. Arrest them, they witness to you. Beat them, they sing. Kill them, they go to heaven. I tell you, they're hard to beat. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good perspective. You see the other side. So he has his army. He has tactics. What are some of his tactics? Well, he's referred to as a trapper. The Bible says our soul has escaped out of the trap of the fowler, the snare of the fowler. A fowler is a bird catcher, someone who catches birds. It could have said the snare of someone who traps beavers or, or muskrats or some other animal. But he's saying a bird. Why a bird? Because a bird is the best expression of freedom. If you've ever watched a hawk fly, an eagle fly, and you just stood back and watched them, or even a seagull, you said, man, look at how amazing, where they land, where they no fear of heights. It's just three dimension. They have this, not bound by gravity, this amazing expression of freedom. And what the enemy wants to do is take our freedom. He wants to trap us and rob us of our freedom that God intended us to have. He who the sun sets... Free is free indeed. I've come to give you abundant life. Satan wants the opposite. He wants to trap us, snare us, take away our freedom. And even when we've been trapped, God warns us about traps. But even when we have been tricked and deceived and we're trapped, God comes along and says, I will free you from the snare of the fowler. Because traps are always designed to be stronger than the victim. We can't get out on our own. If you trap a mouse... You, the mouse can't get out, but that mouse trap won't work on a bear. You, have, you need a much bigger trap for a bear. So we need God to come along and free us from the trap. Traps work on the basis of deceit. You have to trick the, the victim into the trap. If you've ever had a mouse in your house and you go to trap your mouse, what do you do? You put a little bit of cheese on it, right? You put a little bit of peanut butter on it, and you, you see where the mouse droppings are, where he's come out of, the, out of the woodwork there, and you set down your mouse trap. You go to bed that night, and the next morning you wake up and you've caught yourself a mouse. Well, you know, the mouse, when he first saw that trap, he didn't see a trap. He saw a cheese platter. Ah, I just moved in. Look at this. I love cheese. It's so nice. It was really getting cold. It's fall. And I move in. The first thing they do is, I love these people. They set up a mouse trap. I mean, a, a cheese platter for me. They got peanut butter sandwiches waiting for me. This is great. I love this place. And he goes on over, and he's trapped. The enemy, he, does, he, he doesn't say, warning, trap, 
I'm about to kill you. I'm about to harm you. No, he's very patient. He'll take a year. He'll take two years. He will let you nibble on the cheese and peanut butter for as long as it takes until he's got you. And then he'll, the trap will come. Our goal as we respond to the love of the Father, is to flee evil, to stay away from the trap. If we've been trapped, thank God he rescues us from the trap. But it's even better not to be trapped in the, in the first place. Because even though we're freed, we still have some bruises from being in there. They heal, but it, it's so much better to not be there in the first place. This very aristocratic, wealthy lady bought herself a brand new Bentley. I don't know if you've seen the baby blue Bentleys. There's some nice blue Bentleys that drive around town. She bought one of those, wanted a a blue Bentley, nice car. And she needed a driver for the car, so she got the word out there, and she had three drivers show up for her her car. And she went to the first driver, and she says, Go over here, sir. Here's my new Bentley, and I'm going to park it here in the driveway. But next to the driveway, I have this brick wall. Just need to check with you. How close could you drive to this wall and not scratch my Bentley? He said, oh, ma'am, I'm a very careful driver. I could drive within a foot of that wall, no problem, and I would never scratch your Bentley. She says, okay, thank you. She calls in the next guy. He comes. He says, sir, here's my Bentley. Here's the wall. I'm wondering how, how close could you come to this wall without scratching or denting my new Bentley? He said, oh, ma'am, I'm a very good driver. I served in the military. I know how to drive anything. I could come within two inches of that wall, and I would never scratch your Bentley. She said, okay, thank you very much. She calls over the third guy, and she says, here's my Bentley, here's the wall. How close, sir, could you come to this wall and not scratch my blue Bentley? He said, oh, I'm not going to see how close I can get to the wall. Ma'am, I said, as far away from the wall as I could, so I didn't scratch your Bentley. She says, ah, you're hired. You're the one I'm looking for. And that's the way it should be with us. It's not, how close can I come to the edge and not fall over? No, no, no. It's flee the appearance of evil. Run from it. And God gives us an insight into some of his tactics so we can avoid the traps. What are some of his tactics? Well, one is definitely pride, lust. We find it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and here we read, For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for thing, everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father. These are from this evil world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those three. We could spend a message on this. But let me give you one little insight. If you go in your Bibles, or write this down, look it up later, but in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, this is the first time the enemy tempts anybody. And guess what? He uses the exact same recipe. Genesis chapter 3 with Eve. It says, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, food, lust of the flesh, good for food. That's the first one. Then it goes on to say that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Then it goes on to say, a tree desirable to make one wise. What's that? The pride of life. She took its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. It's exactly the same recipe. Folks, guess what? He uses the same tricks. He just repackages them for every generation. And God's just saying, let me give you a heads up. Here's how this phantom operates. You do not have to fall into his traps. I will warn you. Here's his motive of operations. Here's why he's doing it. Here's how he does it. I'm going to help you avoid his falls because it hurts to be trapped by the enemy. 
Now, what else does he use? Well, he uses deception and lies. He uses fear and rejection. He uses false spiritual experiences. He wants to dull your ability to choose. I'm going to come back to deception and lies. Let's go to fear and rejection. This is one of his favorite ones, rejection. Fear. We've all been rejected by somebody. Somewhere along the line, we've all faced rejection. It may have been our parents. It may have been our grandparents. It may have been our uncle. It may have been a school teacher. It may have been a neighbor. It may have been a coach. It may have been a friend where we faced rejection. Rejection is painful. They did a study recently at the University of California. They found out that the part of your brain, when you hurt yourself physically and you have pain in your brain, when you have rejection, you have pain in the exact same place. They did a study using a computer and uh, long story, but anyhow, they found that pain comes the exact same part of your brain. Pain from rejection affects us big time. Our enemy, again, because he wants to isolate you, he plays on rejection. He'll try to set you up for rejection. What's the antidote to rejection? It is the love of God. Because, let me write this verse down, 1 John 4, 18. 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is based, rejection is based in fear. Perfect love casts out all rejection. How does that work? When you are rejected, you feel like nobody likes you, that you are alone, that you are an outcast. But God says, you are not an outcast. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've never rejected you. So when you receive God's love, even though your friend may have rejected you, somebody here this morning, you feel like you're, you went through a divorce and that was such a rejection time of your life, through that, God says, I have not rejected you. Perfect love casts out that fear at spirit of rejection. It displaces it. And when you are not feeling rejected, you do not reject others. But if you buy into that rejection, you will reject others. You reject more, you reject more, you reject more, you reject more. And pretty soon, you are isolated. You no longer want to be with God. You no longer be with people. And you go into your little closet, and you live in your closet. And this is not a very fun place to be. Because it's dark in here. I don't see anybody. I can't see your smiling faces. And I don't want to stay here any longer. But that's where he wants you. That's what rejection does. So that's one of his motives of operation. We could spend more time on that. He's willing to give you a false spiritual experience. It's another one of his tactics. I don't want you to experience Jesus. I don't want you to experience the freedom that he gave you. So I'll give you a cheap substitute. Don't settle for a substitute spiritual experience. There's lots of them out there. And that would be another message. Go after the real thing. If you want to study fake currency versus real currency in a bank, they always show you the real thing to spot the false thing. They'll show you a real $10 bill. You study it so you can spot the fake ones. The best way to know a fake versus a real thing spiritually is to study the real thing, to know Jesus, to know his word. Another motive of operation is to dull your ability to choose. Now, folks, this is a really important one because what he likes to do is somehow weaken your volition where you choose. Every day we have about 50-some thousand thoughts. And you have to make choice after choice. After. You made a choice to come to church today. You made a choice where you sat. You made a choice what you wear. You make all these choices. You make choices when you leave today. You make choices. And if he can somehow get you to weaken your thought, ability, 
your ability to choose, he can get an inroad into your life. Pope John Paul said this, that sex and narcotics are two of the biggest ways that he infiltrates mankind through those two avenues. We think sex is just a physical thing. Uh, no, 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 no. The Bible says the two shall become one. And it doesn't matter whether you're married or not married. When you have sex, there's a soulless thing happening as well as a physical thing happening. And there's something taking place. There's a connection in the soulless realm as well as the physical realm. And we have done enough counseling over the last 20-some years to know this is truth. And psychologists will tell you that as well. And so the Bible gives you a heads up on this. Says, hey, sex is great. Just keep it in the right place. I know in the movies and all the rest of the world does not tell you this side. The enemy doesn't want you to know that side. He'd rather use it against you to trap you. He'd rather use alcohol and narcotics to trap you. Why? Because if we're under the influence... It's those moments when we're under the... What's under the influence? What is under the influence is one of the most important things you have, and that's your ability to stay clear and be able to make choices. Why would we want to give away, make ourselves vulnerable by allowing our volition to be weakened and give our enemy an advantage? I was reading the life of Caesar not too long ago. Caesar was a brilliant man at war. Probably one of the smartest men at war throughout history. And when he would sit down and negotiate with his enemy, he'd sit down at a table and they would serve wine at that table. He would never drink the wine without cutting it with water so that his mind was not affected. He didn't want any fogginess in his mind. He wanted to keep his volition clear and crisp so he could make the right decisions. And every minute... Of every day, we need to be sober, on the alert, because we have an enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yeah, pastor, I don't know about this message. I'm a passive Canadian, and I prefer not to fight, okay? Guess what? You got no choice. You have to put on the gloves. You have to engage in this battle. If you say, I'm just going to passively sit on my side of the ring, he will beat you up. But if you engage, you will win. The only way you lose is by default. So you've got to win. Now, the last way that he does it is through deception and lies. It's one of his favorite ways. He lies. He is a master at lying. And he wants you to buy into his lies. And he'll come along, he'll whisper a lie to you, and then he'll whisper it again to you and again to you. He really has no power unless we believe his lies and think his lies are truth. Because that truth begins to play out in our lives. But he said, no, no, that's not the truth. Then he has no power over you. Let me be transparent this morning or this afternoon with you. One of the lies that he's come to me just recently with was we had uh, Bill Strickland here not too long ago, and we really see the need to help the poor in our city. Bill's doing this successfully around the world. And we thought, what would happen if we as a church really helped springboard this in our city, that we could have an amazing vocational center that uses the arts to help bring relief to the hurting, to the poor, to the disadvantaged in our city. Bill's a great leader from Pittsburgh. And I have another meeting coming up with him. And about a week or so ago, the enemy just came to my mind and said, you know what, just call Bill and tell him 
you know what, it's really not going to work here. And, and he said, you don't have enough support. There won't be enough people behind it. And it just the lies start to come. They're not true, but the lies are coming. I'm just being really open with you that these lies are coming to my head. I was like, oh, maybe I should just call them. The Olympics coming, and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It won't work. Don't do it. And these lies were coming. But then when I go to prayer, I said, Jesus, what about this? And Jesus said, no, I came for the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. I will be with you. I will never forsake you. I will never desert you. I said, but Lord, I think some of the Christians I thought maybe would be around and help, they, they, they're not even interested. Said, yes, but I'm interested. Don't look to them. Look to me. I will take care of them. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I care about the poor. I've come for the poor. It will work. Trust me. Okay, so I go back to God's word. But the lies came. And when the lies come, they inflate in your head. That was my lie. Now, how about you? Does anybody else have a lie where the enemy's come and lied to you? Anybody else willing to share a lie that the enemy's told you? Yes. That you had a bad aura. Yeah, that's a lie from the enemy, that you have a bad aura. Yes. Ah, that's a common one. I think we've had that every service, that you're not a good enough person, you don't deserve it. He's even come along and said, you, you know, God's a holy God. Who are you to think you could have a relationship with God? You're not holy. Why would a holy God want to be with you? That's another lie. We got one in the back there. Yeah, again, he's trying to drive that wedge in, right? So that there's that lie of jealousy. I think I saw another lie back there. Not a lie, but another. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Yeah, that sounds like our enemy. Yeah, why didn't you just sell those fraud, give the money back, and why are you giving there? Yeah, trying to, trying to lie to us about, again, it separates us because your gift was going to help people, and that's, he's, he's about the opposite. So that's a lie. See what happens is we believe his lies. The lies are like a mirage. They get bigger and bigger, and what happens? They separate us from God, and they separate us from other people. And they just get inflated and inflated as they go along. If we, if we listen to them, if we don't respond to them, if we don't resist them and respond with God's word. We've got room for a couple more. <laughs> Anybody else had a lie to them? One of the lies that came up in the other services is, uh, I'm not pretty enough. I don't look good enough. He loves telling young teenage girls this. You don't look as good as a girl in the magazine or on the show. You're not pretty enough. You're never going to get married. That's a common lie. Anybody else have a lie? Yeah. Oh, my past negates my future. Yeah, look what you did. You're never going to amount to anything. That is a lie. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of our favorite verses. Ah, I was thinking about your future. It's good, not evil. It's good. It's not negated. There's nothing about that in there. Everything's been washed away. It's been made new. You go from glory to glory. The path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter. Yeah. Maya's got two. One more. We're almost done. Ah. To get love from God, you have to work for it. You have to be deserving of it. Yeah. Aren't you glad he loved us the way we were? Messed up. Made mistakes. He accepts us and loves us. He, he first loved us, and we get to respond to his love. Not, enemies lie to a lot of people about that. Don't come to church. Don't go to God. You're not good enough. You don't deserve his love. Quit this, quit that, quit that, and then you can, God will love you. Aren't you glad you don't have to quit everything before he loves you? He loves you the way you are. 
And then through his love, we get victory. But we don't have to get everything together to be right with God. We're right with God because what Jesus did for us. So that's a big lie. <laughs> We're running out of room, but we got more room for one more. Anybody? Yes, ma'am. He doesn't love you. Yeah. That's one of his favorite. But I like John 3.16. For God so loved the world. I'm part of that. That he gave a son for me. That would speak. So we got quite a few lies. And if we believe them. They just kind of mushroom. And, bl- and blow up in our lives. But you guys know what I'm going to do already. This is this little pin here. Very small compared to the balloon. Right? But this little pin represents one verse of scripture. How many know you're just one verse away from victory? One verse away from having victory. The word of God is quick and powerful and what? Sharper. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper. And so when he comes at us with our lies, we respond with the word of God and we say, but it is written. And what happens? We realize his lies are nothing but a bunch of hot air. There is no substance to it. The only way it becomes substance if we internalize it and we buy into it and we start accepting it as truth instead of God's word as truth. Yeah. So we expose him. The Bible says expose the works of the enemy. And that's what we did this morning. If we know something or this afternoon, if we know something about our enemy, next week we're going to study more about our authority and who we are in Christ. If he has a weakness, it's certainly this. When believers know who their enemy is, but more importantly, they know who they are and they know their authority. That is his greatest sore point. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.